0: We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Your Bible open, Matthew chapter number 26. I'd like to begin with verse number one, then I'd like to pick it up also down in verse number 17. I have never tried to preach some of these verses in the pulpit, I don't think, in all the days of my life. I'm certain I've never tried to use the text that I want to use tonight in verse number 22. So let's look with your Bible open, please. It came to pass, verse one, Matthew 26, uh, when Jesus has finished all these sayings of chapter 25 and the Olivet Discourse, Very interesting thing to me to note that immediately after the Lord finished giving uh, the Olivet discourse that has to do with the second coming of our Lord, that immediately upon that, uh, the death of our Lord begins to take shape. In chapter 26, you've got the betrayal of our Lord. You also have Jesus before the Sanhedrin court in the house of Caiaphas. You also have the Garden of Gethsemane experience. And then you have the Last Supper immediately after the Olivet Discourse. And then uh, in chapter 27, of course, you have the crucifixion of our Lord. When Jesus finished all these sayings of the Olivet Discourse, he said unto his disciples, ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Now, Jesus talks rather familiar in verse number two about the feast of the Passover. If there was anybody in the world that was familiar with the feast of the Passover, the Lord was. If there's any group in the world that was familiar with the feast of the Passover, the 12 disciples were. And Jesus said to the 12, ye know that in two days is the feast of the tabernacle. Feast, rather, of the Passover, after two days. Now, this is a very important thing to our Lord because it's on this feast of the Passover that our Lord is to die, the last lamb to shed his blood upon the cross for your sin remission and for mine. He was born for this hour. He was born for Calvary. He was born crucified. He was born rejected of men. He was born to suffer. He was born to receive the judgment of God in uh, his body in my place and in my stead. And after two days, he said, That great event will transpire. The feast of the Passover will become a reality. And the last lamb, God's lamb, shall die on this particular day of the feast of the Passover. Uh, And now in verse number 17, now when the first day of the feast of unleavened bread uh, was at hand, Jesus came to, the disciples rather came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? and to celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. Now, the feast of the Passover was one single day when the Passover lamb was slain, and this had been observed, of course, since Moses' day, 1,400 years prior to the days of our Lord. Every year on this particular day, and the feast of the Passover always fell on the 14th day of the first month. And it was on that day that every Passover lamb had been slain under the strict uh, direction of the law and supervision of the priest in Israel. Now, this is no different. Here's another feast of the Passover. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day celebration. And in that Feast of Unleavened Bread that began on the same day of the Passover, uh, all the Jews were required to put all leaven from their food, all leaven from their, their, their bread, and eat unleavened bread... Uh, For seven days Leaven in the Bible is always a type and symbol of that which is evil And uh, sinful and wrong And the fact that they celebrated the feast of unleavened bread Is a type and symbol of your sanctification and my uh, sanctification These Jews were to put out all leaven from their diet, from their food For seven days as they celebrated the feast of unleavened bread Now later on, on the 14th day, they celebrated the Feast of the First Fruits. And then uh, 50 days following that, they celebrated the Feast of Pentecost. And then four months following that, they celebrated the Feast of the Trumpets. And then two weeks following that, they celebrated the Feast of Atonement. And then immediately following that, they celebrated number seven, the Feast of the Tabernacle. Now all of this is set up in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses. It's God's economy. It's God's plan of redemption and plan for the ages written down in the Bible long centuries before the Savior was ever born. This is one of the reasons I believe the Bible. The Bible is the most unique book in all the world. Of course, the worldly wise would never see the symbolism and significance of the seven feast days in their relation to the church, in their relation to God's plan for the ages, no more than the worldly wise receive see the significance of the seven parables in Matthew 13, or the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. The worldly wise see no significance. But you and I that are spiritually minded and have the spirit of discernment, we see great significance uh, in the seven feast days, in the seven parables of Matthew 13, And the seven letters to the seven churches are Revelation 2 and 3. Great significance we put in those things. Because they speak of God's plan, God's economy, God's purpose down through the ages. And that's especially so with the feast of the Passover, uh, the day the Passover lambs were slain. And the feast of unleavened bread, seven days, no leaven was to be consumed by any Jew during the celebration of the feast of unleavened bread. Now the disciples have been celebrating that feast, being Jews, every year for a long time. The Lord Jesus, being a Jew, had celebrated the feast of the Passover for years. Sure. And his mother and dad, being Jews, his foster father, being Jews, had no doubt celebrated the feast of the Passover for years before the Lord was born. Uh, Jesus is quite familiar with what he's doing. And the disciples are quite familiar with what they're doing. And that's why the disciples came to Jesus one day before the Feast of Unleavened Bread and said, now, where wilt that we prepare uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Where are we going to have the supper, the feast, and celebrate this first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Evidently, they had done that the year before somewhere, and the year before that somewhere, and the year before that somewhere. And so those disciples take it for granted. The Lord's going to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread again. And they did. They sure did. And so they came to the Lord and said, now, uh, where are we to go? We have no upper room. We have no gathering place. We have no kitchen uh, to prepare a meal. And we don't know where to go. Lord, you, you help us out now. Just one day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Where are we to prepare to eat uh, the Passover? And Jesus said, go into the city to such a man. Now the Lord knew exactly what to tell these disciples to go. And you say to this man, the Lord the Master saith, my time is at hand and I will keep the Passover at your house, at thy house with my disciples. Now evidently the Lord knew what he was talking about. You just wouldn't walk up to anybody's door and knock on anybody's door and say, now uh, we want to borrow your dining room for tonight. You don't do that. Evident the Lord knew this man. And knew that uh, it would be all right and that he'd be responsive and that he would gladly allow Jesus and his disciples to use the upper room for that last uh, uh, supper uh, with he and his disciples. And so Jesus said, you go to this certain man's house and you tell him that uh, the master has need and we'll uh, prepare and have the last supper in the upper room with my disciples Uh, On the feast of the unleavened bread. And so the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them. And they made ready the Passover. They got the meal ready. Everything was ready. Now I have no idea all that was on that table. Now I, I think there was far more on this last supper table. The Passover feast and the feast of unleavened bread. There was a lot more on that table than simply bread and fruit of the vine. You say, well, preacher, what was there on that table? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, but the Bible does say, uh, one or two verses further down, that Jesus reached his hand into the dish. And uh, the one that betrayed him reached his hand at the same time into the same dish. And evidently, there was other food on the table. And then verse number 19 implies that there was other food in addition to the bread that was a, a symbol of the body of our Lord and the fruit of the vine that was a symbol of his blood. There were other things. The only, the only restriction was that there was to be no leavened bread. Bread that were they were to eat now for seven days was to be made without any kind of shortening, without any kind of seasoning, without any kind of salt, to make it tasteful and delightful to your taste. They were to eat unleavened bread, not only at this meal, but for the next seven days, every meal was to have unleavened bread served. Now, there were other things at the table. I don't know. I imagine they had a well-rounded diet, far as I know, on that table. Now, among the things that was on that table, of course, was the unleavened bread, but also the bread of that last supper that Jesus said, this is my body. And the fruit of the vine that he said, this is my blood. That was on the uh, table as well. Well, let's see what happened now. Uh, it says in verse number 20, now when the uh, even was come, supper time had arrived, he sat down with the twelve. And I can almost see that picture in my mind. If you ever go to Jerusalem, one of the most important places that you'll visit will be what they call today the upper room. Now, I don't know whether that's literally this same upper room that our Lord celebrated the last supper in or not. I have doubts that it is because the city has been destroyed several times since our Lord lived. But uh, it's an ancient room uh, nearby David's tomb, in fact, hard by David's tomb until this day. An ancient room is there, unoccupied, nothing in it, no furniture in it, and the touristry carried into that and shown as the uh, supper room for the last supper with Jesus and, and his disciples. Well, it might not have been literally that room, but there was a room in that general area, and I would imagine much like the one that they carry in when you make your tours to Jerusalem. In which our Lord sat at the table, he and his uh, twelve disciples with him as they partook of the supper. He sat down with the twelve. Note, with the twelve. Now in verse 21, as they did eat. I imagine they began eating. They no doubt blessed the food and uh, there was a lot of good uh, uh, fellowship. A lot of good talking, serious talking, solemn, solemn talking. Uh, The next day the Lord is to go before the Sanhedrin court. The next day he's going to be crucified. Now imagine that's heavy upon the Lord's heart and mind. I don't guess there's any laughter. I doubt if there's any merriment at this particular occasion. I imagine it's the most solemn meal that our Lord ever engaged in with his disciples. And the Lord ate with his disciples on many occasions. And here's another occasion. But this occasion is right before the death of our Lord upon Calvary. And as they did eat together, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Now can you imagine how shaken those disciples must have been when the Lord made that announcement? Here's 12 disciples seated around the table. And our Lord in their midst, and most of you have seen pictures of the Last Supper, with the Lord in the middle and six disciples on one side and six disciples on the other around the table. And they had been enjoying fellowship together, eating this food together, and taking unleavened bread to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then all of a sudden, the Lord announced, Very I say unto you, one of you shall betray me. And when the Lord made that, they made that statement, they were exceeding sorrowful, the twelve, exceeding sorrowful. They were shaken, they were jolted. And each one of them began to look at the other and say one to another and then say unto the Lord, Lord, is it I? And that's my text. Lord, is it I? Now when look at the picture of the Last Supper, nobody knows exactly where each one of the disciples uh, were placed about the Lord. But usually the pictures of the Last Supper have John the beloved disciple next to the Savior. And then not hard away from the Savior is Judas Iscariot, that bag of money in his hand. You've seen the picture and you watch that bag of money in the hand of Judas Iscariot. And then you've got Simon, Peter, and Matthew and all the others in that, in that Supper. And the Lord said, now, verily I say unto you, one of you shall betray me. And as far as I know, those disciples, when Jesus made that announcement, did not have the remotest idea who that one would be. Judas Iscariot, as far as I know, had been completely successful in deceiving the other eleven and covering his real nature thus far. If Matthew had any idea Judas was going to do that, I haven't found it in the Bible. If Peter had any idea that Judas was going to do that, he doesn't say anything about it. So far as I know, the only person in that assembly who knew what Judas was, was Judas himself and the Savior. And when the Lord said, one of you shall betray me, why, I don't know whether Matthew thought about Judas or whether he thought about Peter. I don't know whether Peter thought about Matthew or if he thought about John. And you can imagine the tumult and the excitement that must have prevailed in that moment when the announcement was made that one of you shall betray me. And they began to look at one another exceeding sorrowful. And all of them began to say, and I want you to note this, all of them, each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? Now if I take that verse literally and I do that means old John the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the three epistles and also the revelation and there never was a finer man that ever walked the shores of time a more godly man surely than John. But old John said Lord is it I? If I take that verse literally then Matthew who had a real experience of grace to the degree that he gave up a well paying job and followed the Savior. He quit the business of tax collecting and took his family and followed the Lord in Nazarene. What a price Matthew paid. But Matthew said, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Peter, the impulsive disciple who always seems to speak out, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly, but he's always got a word. Praise God for that. Peter said, Lord, is it I? Thomas! Who doubted the resurrection of our Lord. And Jesus had to show him the nail prints. And the ribbon side. Thomas said Lord is it I? Each of the disciples. Said Lord is it I? And each one of them not knowing. Who the guilty one would be. Now that's quite a scene. And that impressed itself upon my heart. As I read it the other day. Now Jesus couldn't leave it that way. He had to go to the limit the one that was to betray the savior must be identified. And so the Lord Jesus said in verse number 22, uh, uh, verse 23, Jesus answered and said to the 12 disciples, he that giveth his hand with me in the dish to get food of course, and to enjoy that food. But the one of you that will reach out and dip your hand into the dish with me, The same shall betray me. I don't know. I I, I guess if I'd have been in that assembly and been one of the disciples, I I would have put my hands in my pocket. Or I'd have closed my hands and held them firmly. I imagine Peter might have looked at his hands, uh, rough and, and hardened from labor at the fisherman's task. And Matthew might have looked at his hand, Maybe not as rough because he'd counted money with those hands for long years as a tax collector. And old Thomas might have looked at his hands. And as he looked at his own hands, he might have remembered the nail pierced hand of the Savior that he saw after the crucifixion. And uh, I don't know, I don't know. But if I'd been in that assembly, I think I'd have settled my hands. I think I'd have held my hand. I think I'd have put my hand in my pocket i think i would have said now by the grace of god i sure won't put my hand in that dish while the savior puts his hand there now the lord said behold the one that dips his hand into the dish with me the same shall betray me and i imagine every one of those disciples began to look at the lord and then they commence to look at one another and they watched where the hands were, whether in their pockets or whether they were clasped together or whether they were being uh, 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 seated upon or sitting upon. I imagine they looked at those hands and said, I wonder who in the world will do such a thing as that. And then Judas is carried. He couldn't hide it. He was a man. He couldn't hide it. And so he reached out and dipped his hand. Uh, with the Lord in that dish. Jesus reached out to took, take food out of that dish and Judas couldn't hide it. And he reached out and took food with the Lord and became identified. He couldn't hide it any longer. I don't think Judas could have sat on his hands. I don't think Jesus Judas could have held his hands. I think it was time for the uh, son of perdition to become identified I think it was time for the one who was a devil from the beginning to be clearly identified. And so Judas reached out. He couldn't help doing it. He reached out and dipped his hand with the Savior and thus become identified. Verse 24, the Son of Man goeth as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been better had that man Never been born had he not been born Than to have been born to live to betray the Savior But when Judas reached out and took that food As the Lord took food out of that dish He that betrayed him answered I want you to watch what Judas said Master, is it I? And Jesus said, thou hast said Now all the other disciples one by one said Lord, is it I? But Judas said, Master, is it I? And Jesus said, Thou hast said, You're the one. And Judas got up and went out. And of course, from that moment, began planning the betrayal of the Savior. And did betray the Savior with a kiss in the garden of Gethsemane just a few hours later. Thou hast said, You're the one. And he betrayed the Savior. Now I want you to know, Jesus said, Judas, it would have been better had you not been born and i'm sure that somewhere down the line some mother brought judas into the world and when judas was born like every mother that mother's heart was proud and beat with joy and hope and anticipation and yet that mother held at her bosom the one whose name has gone down in the pages of god's word as the one that betrayed the savior and the lord said that crime is so hideous and so ungodly Until it would have been better had you not ever been born, Judas, than to have been born to dip your hand in the dish with me and thus go out to betray me to my enemies. And that's exactly what Judas did. But Judas never knew the Lord. His uh, his calling Jesus master is a pretty clear indication of that. No man calleth Jesus Lord save by the Holy Spirit. The disciples one by one said, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? But when it got to Judas's time uh, to ask the question, he didn't say Lord, he said Master. Like the rich young ruler, good Master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? Like Nicodemus in John 3, Rabbi, which means Master. And on and on, many in the Bible call Jesus Master. But a born again man will call Jesus Lord. And there's a great deal of difference, you see. Judas Iscariot's heart was blind and as dark as the heart of a pagan. And when he said, Master, it revealed just what he is. Only inside, had he been like Thomas and like John and Peter, he would have said, Lord, but he never called Jesus Lord. Jesus was not Lord to Judas Iscariot. Judas betrayed him. Judas never knew him. Judas was the devil from the beginning. And he said, Master, is it I? Now I could go on, let me go just a bit further and then I will come back to that text in a moment and note some things about it, several things. And as they were eating, Jesus said, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, may I say not literally the body. That bread at the supper table was not literally the body. Of our Lord. Now one of the great differences between Baptists and Roman Catholics is right at this particular point. We have the bread of the communion, but we believe that that bread of the communion is symbolic of the body of our Lord, broken and given for us upon Calvary. But Roman Catholics believe that when the priest prays a prayer over that bread at the Roman Mass, that it actually and literally becomes the body of our Lord. And that they're eating literally the body of our Lord. And that the fruit of the vine literally becomes the blood of our Lord. Now that's one of the great differences between Rome and Baptist. Now Jesus said, take and eat. This is my body symbolically. And then Jesus took the cup and gave to his disciples and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. And this is my blood. Symbolic of my blood in the New Testament, the new covenant, the new age, the new gospel, which is shed for you for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not henceforth drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Now the fruit of the vine to me was no more than just that. Somebody wrote to me the other day and said, Now, Brother Harold, in the church while I go. They serve fermented wine from the communion table. And they said, now, would you endorse that? Would you practice that? And I had to write that person back, and I said, ma'am, I would not be a member of the church that served fermented wine from the communion table. I think it would be wrong. It would be a violation of the scripture. It would be a contradiction. where well, the Bible says, wine is a mocked, strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Well, the Bible says, woe to the man that putteth the bottle to the lip of his neighbor. No, in the end it bideth like a serpent, stingeth like an adder, It destroys and blights the souls of millions of people. And I think it'd be a a gross contradiction of all the Bible stands for to serve fermented wine from this communion table. Now, as far as I'm concerned, why can't it be the fruit of the vine? Grape juice. Why can't it be that? That's the fruit of the vine. And that won't hurt you. You could drink that and never get drunk and never have any ill effect from it. But you couldn't say that about wine. You know the American people are being brainwashed in a systematic uh, advertising program these days to put a wine bottle on every table in America. And you hear it on the TV and over the radio everywhere you turn. Now wine does exactly what beer does and what hard liquor does. In the end it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. And in the end it brings forth death. And you go to hell just as quick as a drunkard by wine as you will by beer or by whiskey. And I'd never recommend that you use it from the communion table. We'd never do that, of course, here at Tabernacle Baptist Church. Now let's go back to verse number 22, the words of my text. One by one, these disciples said to the Lord, Lord, is it I? I'm astounded at that. Lord, is it I? Now to me, there are three great things that are suggested by this question made by all the disciples, including Judas, except Judas said, Master, is it I? Three great things that I find from the eleven will exclude Judas because he gets up, goes out. When he becomes identified, when he dips his hand with the Lord into that dish and becomes identified, he gets up and goes out and begins to lay plans to betray the Lord and agrees to sell him for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus continues, the last supper with the eleven. Judas has now departed. And Jesus goes on. And they say, Lord, is it I? Is it I? I'm astounded at that. Number one, this great question suggests to me their utter honestness. How honest they must have been to ask that question. Lord, is it I? There's not one bit of egotism among the eleven. There is not one bit of fleshly pride among the eleven. There is not one bit of religious pride among the eleven. They're all honest enough and humble enough one by one to say, Lord, is it I that would do a terrible thing like that? Their utter honestness overwhelms me. I suspect that if I was in a place like that, or if you was in a place like that, uh, we would have tried to cover it. If we'd had any idea that it would have been us, we might have tried to cover anyway, or we might have tried to excuse. But as far as I know, not one of the 11 tried to make any defense. As far as I can tell from the question, all 11 admitted the potential, admitted the possibility.
1: And they were honest
0: enough to say by their question, Lord, I'm a rascal, and I could do a thing like that. God forbid that I do a thing like that, but I could do a thing like that. Lord, is it I? They didn't try to cover that, did they? They were completely and utterly honest by saying, Lord, is it I? Now, let's learn a lesson at that point. There is not one bit of use in the world for me or you, anybody else, to try to cover up with a religious pretense. We're not kidding anybody. We certainly can't kid God. We don't deceive God. We don't deceive ourselves. And you're not going to deceive everybody long. Judas Iscariot had everybody fooled for a while, but the Lord had a way of revealing who Judas, Judas was and what Judas was. And old Judas might have tried to keep his hand in his pocket. But he reached out and put his hand in that dish with the Lord, just as sure as you live. He reached out then took that food with the Lord and became identified. He couldn't help himself. God said, I'm going to mark you. And old Judas reached out and took that food with the Lord. But those 11 disciples said to themselves, isn't this a terrible thing? That one of us, one of the disciples, one of the same 12 that we find recorded in Matthew 10... One of the same 12 to whom the Lord gave the great commission in Matthew 10 that I preached about this morning on the TV. Uh, The same 12 Jesus said to uh, uh, heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, and uh, freely you've received, freely you give, cast out devils. One of those would betray. Judas Iscariot was given that, that commission, by the way and went along with the 12 disciples from the very beginning of those three years till this last supper went right along with them. And he was so popular among them until he was elected treasurer of the group and carried the money back. And yet those fellows, when Jesus said, one of you shall betray me, are so honest and so utterly honest until each one of them say, Lord, is it I? The second thing that I learned from this tremendous question is that these disciples had a knowledge of the weakness of the flesh. They knew how weak their flesh was, they knew it. Now, one of the saddest things I've ever seen in my life is for a man to put too much confidence in the arms of the the flesh. I've seen that happen so many times. Don't ever glory in the flesh. Sometimes I get a little bit amused at young people. I feel feel for them because I know what a young Christian is facing. I thank God for young Christians. I thank God for young men. These fine Bible Institute students we have here in the Bible Institute, I look at them sometimes with real godly envy because they've got youth and I don't have it. I wish I could be young again to give my life to God. I thank God for these young men. But I find sometimes that young people don't really understand Young people uh, uh, can, might easily sometimes, uh, think more highly of themselves than they ought or put too much dependence in the arm of the flesh. They say to themselves, I can handle it, I can do it. But those disciples had long since gotten over that evidently from the question they made, from the question they said, Lord, is it I? And from that question I see That they knew how weak the flesh was. And when John said, Lord, he said, I, even John, the beloved disciple, is admitting that in his flesh there is the potential of doing exactly that. Now, that's pretty hard for us to admit. Pretty hard for us to admit. I've been saved 48 years and preaching 35 of them. And it's pretty hard for me to admit that sin lieth at my door. It's pretty far hard for me to concede that except I mortify my members which are upon the earth that I'll make shipwreck of my faith and bring disgrace upon my wife and my children and my grandchildren and disgrace upon you and I'd rather die in this pulpit tonight than to live to do that. But I want to say to you that I have never gotten to the place where I thought in my flesh I was able to apprehend. Were it not for the grace of God. I would never be able to persevere. I would never go on. I would have already made havoc. And ruin of my ministry. And shivered of my faith. Except by the grace of God. I'll never reach this point. When you put too much confidence in your flesh. You're doing a, a dangerous thing. Very dangerous thing. And evidently these disciples had sure grown in grace and knowledge to the degree that they put no confidence in the flesh. They knew how weak their flesh was. And even John, the beloved disciple, said, Lord, is it I? Would I do a terrible thing like that? And even old Peter, with all of his grace and boldness, said, Lord, is it I? Would I do a thing like that? Now, brethren, that's what the text says. One by one, every one of them said, Lord, is it I? And I learned from that question their knowledge of the weakness of the flesh. Now, brethren, my hope is built upon nothing less than Jesus' name and his righteousness. I'm not good, nor am I strong, nor am I powerful, nor have I availed, nor can I travail, But I have the most wonderful high priest at the right hand of the throne of God on high. And I spend my whole life extolling that name that's above every name. And I live and move and have my being in him. And I can do all things through him who strengtheneth me and without him I am nothing. And you are nothing. And we need to reach the point the disciples evidently had reached in their lives. And one by one they said Lord is it I Say preacher you don't think much I think as much of you as I think of me I don't think much of myself I'm no good except In the grace of God brethren I can't glory Except I glory in the cross Don't you dare glory Except you glory in the cross you say, I'm going to win the victory. I'm going to travail. I'm going to succeed. I'm going to do this or the other. You say, the Lord, be in my hamper. I'll go on. And if God's not your hamper, you won't go on. You can't go on except God and Abel. Except God give you grace to go on. You can't go on. And those disciples learned a great lesson when they said, Lord, is it I? And then number three... I also learned from this question by each of the 11 disciples, I learned their readiness to repent. They're saying when they said, Lord, is it I? Well, old John said, Lord, is it I? He said as if, Lord God, if it's me, you say the word and I'm ready to hit the altar. If I did a dirty thing like that, I need to come to the mourner's bench. And Lord God, if it's me that's going to deny you, you just let me know and we'll have an altar call right now. And we'll repent of this thing and get it right with God. They were ready to repent. And that's why they said, Lord, it is an I." I imagine the 11 disciples said, I don't want this supper to come to a close until we find out who that guilty person is. And I'm sure they didn't want it to come to a close until they found out. And they did find out. But at this particular point in verse 22, not one of them knew who the guilty one would be. And each one of the 11, Judas knew who the guilty one was. But the 11 didn't know. And the 11 said, we must get to settle now. And if it's one of us, we'll get on our knees and let the great Savior pray that God will forgive us of that heinous crime and we'll repent of it and ask God to wash it away. I learned their readiness to repent. Now any of us may fail, sometimes we do. I'm not, sad, I'm not happy that we do, and I'm not proud that we do, but sometimes that which I would do, that I do not, and that which I would not do, that I do, and you could say the same thing. We're not always successful. We sometimes fail. If I would ask you to lift your hands if you'd ever fail being what you want to be, doing what you'd love to do. All of us have put our hands up. We've all failed, we've all sinned, come short of the glory of God. Not one of us has been everything we want to be to God's glory. But a man that's true and genuine, when he fails, will get on his face before God, like old David, and cry and say, Lord, forgive me, I've sinned against you. Like old Peter, who when he denied the Lord went out and wept bitterly and said, oh God forgive me. Those disciples had that spirit. And if you're genuine, you've got that spirit. And if you've got the spirit of haughtiness and pride and self like, like uh, the rich young ruler. And like Judas Iscariot. Then you have no notion to repent. You have no desire to repent. And you won't repent. But a man that's genuine and real will crawl in sackcloth and ash. Say, oh God, if it's me, please forgive me. Please forgive me. I'm ready to repent if it's me. Lord, is it I? Now I'd like to leave that question upon your heart and mind tonight. I'm not saying that you've denied the Lord, not at all. But I'm simply saying that there could be a possibility that you might fail in some important witnessing or some important ministry. You might fail to be what you ought to be at the very time you need to be that to God's glory. If you fail, don't abandon the grace of God. Don't abandon the faith. Don't give up the ship. If you fail, assume the attitude of the 11, be ready to repent and get restored in fellowship with the Lord. Lord, is it I? Is it I? We will bow our heads in prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Now, Lord Jesus... I've delivered the text you put on my heart. I pray that the people might keep it upon their heart. And may it become a shield and a buckler that will guard us against the fiery darts of the wicked one who would cause us to betray the Savior by failing to witness or by failing to serve or by failing to stand as we ought to stand. God forbid we do that. Help us to put ourselves on the altar and give everything we are to the savior. And then if we fail in any degree, help us like the 11 to be so ready to repent until immediately we get on our faces and cry, Lord, forgive me of that which I might have done wrong. Purge me and wash me from sin and fault in the precious blood of the lamb. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I wonder if there's somebody in the building tonight who's failed the Lord. In one way or another, maybe you failed to witness. Maybe you failed to live clean and separated. Maybe you failed to be obedient. Maybe you failed in your ministry. You failed in your calling. Maybe you've denied the Lord. You might have even gone so far as to fail to stand up for him in the midst of his enemies. And tonight you've come face to face with that. And you've asked yourself the question, Lord, is it I? And now you'd like to put your hand up and say, Pastor, pray for me that God will help me to be loyal. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen. And join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.